All right, here we go. Three, two. Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, we're with Michael, our resident Ephesiologist, Andrew Johnson, Associate Pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas, and I'm Matt Till up in the Chicago suburbs. It is good to be with you guys today on another episode of the Ephesiology Podcast. How are we all doing? Trying to I'm stay good. warm. Winter is coming a little earlier than we expected. Yeah, I Look, know. Texas is cold, really great. No, it's like, so we had that cold front and literally all of Houston was like, we're going to get a cold front. We're going to get a cold front. And it came all the way to Houston's front door and stopped. And stopped. And, no. and so we have no cold front and it's well, still hot. It hit us pretty well up north here. And uh, man, it, it feels like it's just like fall just like came in a single day and it's really disturbing. Hey, can we just give a shout out to all of our friends in the Denver area who went from 99 and 100 degrees Monday yes. and woke up to 34 degrees yes. on Tuesday and got dumped on. I mean, smart. that is amazing. You are my heroes. I can't promise you that we'll give you a spot on the podcast <laughs> if you call in, but I would love to hear from everybody who's listening in that area. I want to hear all the stories that you have. That's right. That's right. And of course, also our friends out West, uh, as they're battling the wildfires, they actually are in need of that snow and that rain. So be our prayers are with you. Yeah. Well, well uh, it's gentlemen, 2020, isn't it? It is 2020. Why it not? It just keeps getting better. That's right. That's right. We go from fire to hail to snow. We're having it all this year. And, you know, speaking of 2020, um, we have this, uh, a report that came out, the State of Theology. Uh, this is uh, put together uh, by Ligonier Ministries, and uh, they just released this uh, this past week, and uh, we're having an opportunity to take a look at it. And the implications here, I think, are helpful for us as we are thinking about this as a physiologist, as those who are uh, looking to see God's mission fulfilled in the world and uh, seeing our part in that. Uh, Michael, you kind of teased this out a little bit last week on our episode, and um, you were talking a little bit about the importance of why we need to have sound doctrine um, and the purpose of sound doctrine in our missional movements. Uh, why don't you just kind of recap that a little bit, and then just as a precursor before we get into uh, looking at this uh, data. Yeah, well, we were talking last week about these three areas of focus that uh, the early church had. One of them being defending the faith. And what we see and what we realize as we look at Jesus's letter to that church in Ephesus is that those people that that church were defending the faith to were those who were coming out of the church. And it's so interesting to, to think that um, there are those among, even in the first century, uh, that those among uh, the, the church who were teaching false uh, doctrine. And of course, we know that Paul, uh, in his letter to Timothy, uh, commends him to ensure that the church stays on track to, uh, to continue to teach properly and to guard against um, those false apostles. In fact, he in uh, Acts chapter 20, he makes the same plea to the elders at the church in Ephesus, uh, that, that they're to guard the flock. And so this is really a, a serious uh, part of the ministry of the church to, to ensure that she stays uh, theologically orthodox in, in her beliefs. 
And uh, yeah, and so what we're seeing as a result of uh, the work that Ligonier and they did this in in uh, together with LifeWave Research, um, it, what we're seeing is it might be rather shocking to many of us um, that evangelicals aren't as perhaps evangelical as what they think. So let's talk about that for a second before we get into this, Michael. But um, as we look at this data, the lens that we're looking at this through, um, are we, you mentioned the word orthodox. Um, I think orthodox or orthodoxy, I think could be, uh, could shift from depending upon your brand, your flavor of, you know, of Christianity, perhaps. Um, obviously, an Orthodox Catholic would be different than an Orthodox Evangelical. Um, so, uh, as you already mentioned, are we looking at this strictly from Evangelicalism? And if so, who does that include? Well, the, the survey is, of course, broadly, it's, it's a survey that was given to uh, 3,002 people um, that make up not only evangelicals, but black Protestants, mainline Roman Catholic, and a category that they call other. Um, and so when, when we're talking then about what it means to be orthodox, uh, what we're referring to and what this survey is referring to is, is what the church has believed historically um, in, in many cases. I mean, there are some, some questions in this survey that do betray a particular theological background. Um, and, and we won't go through all of this in the survey, but, but, um, but there are those kinds of questions that appear, um, whether it's an eschatological viewpoint or um, a soteriological viewpoint, so a viewpoint of the end times or of uh, the doctrine of salvation. Um, but what is of concern, I think, uh, for all Christians is where we're seeing a departure from the historic faith. You know, those the tenets of the faith that the church has always believed from the first century into the third century and into the into our century, um, and those there are certainly those things. Uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, that God uh, is uh, is the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are co-eternal and co-equal. Um, that, that, that is a key uh, doctrine, historic doctrine of the church. Um, and so, yeah, so we begin to see some of these uh, departures, if you will, from these historic doctrines in, in this survey. And I think what's significant about this survey, I mean, if it were just this one, um, then, then we could begin to wrestle with the questions of validity and, uh, and things like that. But this, is, this has been longitudinal, meaning that it's been done over time. And so uh, this started in 2016, uh, they, and they published that first survey. And then again in 2018, and this is 2020. So this is the third survey um, of the same questions to approximately the same number of people. And what we're seeing is a consistency uh, across those three surveys that give us an indication that this is indeed what um, is happening in uh, American Christianity. 
Let's, uh, let's start taking a look at some of this data here, and I'm sure we'll have some more comments on this as we, uh, as we kind of go through. And, and one of the things, too, is just its, it's implications, I suppose, on the mission and movement of God in the world. And um, what it is that we've really been talking about, a lot about is the glorification of God in all things. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting to see as we kind of look at it through that lens and through that physiological lens for us as to how, where does this match up? How does that question uh, bring that mission about? How do we see that as we're reading scriptures, but also to the, the implications of the Orthodox practices and beliefs of the church, I think will be really helpful as we go through this. Um, just for example, let's start here, just with statement number one. And the statement reads this, God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. Now we are profiling, we're looking at this just from an evangelical standpoint. Uh, the, if you're listening and playing along at home, you can look at this information for yourself at thestateoftheology.com. It's available for free. And uh, if you go over to Data Explorer, there's quite a number of uh, features that you can have to kind of zero in and take a broader and more precise look at this, um, at this data that they've made available to us. But for us, we're looking at it from an evangelical standpoint, that statement, God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. Um, we see here that um, if I'm reading this correctly, um, although actually I'm not sure how to read this correctly. Yeah, it's, is it the, uh, <laughs> I see two numbers here. Michael, help me understand this. <laughs> yeah, so the top number here, uh, so what this is doing is comparing how everybody responded to oh, yeah. just how evangelicals responded. Yeah. Now, now we should say in the, in the, the, survey does say this, that when we begin to narrow down into specific categories or affiliations in this case, then, then uh, the, the validity of it gets a little bit uh, fuzzy. And so the, the margin of error increases when the numbers of sur those surveyed uh, get smaller. But it does, again, uh, I think the importance of this is that this, has been, this is a survey that has been done over time. And so it does paint uh, a good picture of this. So, so, so this is comparing the 3,000 uh, total number of yeah. respondents to the 582 that identified themselves as being evangelical. And let's make sure, again, as we're, since we're just starting this out, and uh, since you might be trying to play along at home, Again, go to the website that Matt said, and then make sure on the left-hand side that you have selected under the affiliation category, evangelical, so that what you see on your screen reflects what we see on our screen, and so that we're talking about the same thing you're seeing. Because it might be very confusing if you select something else, and Matt's talking about two numbers, and you say, I don't see two numbers, and you might be lost. We don't want you to be lost. But here on that first question, uh, it says, again, 50% uh, of all respondents said that they strongly agreed that God was perfect and uh, a perfect being and could not make a mistake. Um, and 80% of those who said they were evangelical strongly agreed in that same exact question. It's a significant difference, but also a significant number of those who do not strongly agree with that statement. Yeah. So I looking at this one for me, uh, maybe this is me just trying to be on the side of somebody who wants to try to pick apart a question because I may or may not do that every time I take a survey. Um, this does say that 80% strongly agree and 11% somewhat agree 
but I'm trying to take that swath of 91% agree. So there's still 9% that either aren't sure or disagree. Um, but I look at that and I say 91% agree. It's not the hundred that I would like to see, but it makes sense. It's yeah, sad, so not, it the, sense. here we're talking about the 91% of evangelicals. And then right. the, in the case of uh, the entire American population, it's 65% would strongly right. or, or would agree with that statement that God is perfect and cannot make a mistake. And by the way, interesting to note, um, 7% of evangelicals are in the disagree category with 23% of those of the broad Christian population saying they disagree. Mm. Um, which is, I, I mean, I would say, I mean, that's pretty significant, even especially for an evangelical, I would say for 7% to respond to self-identify as an evangelical Christian. And then to say that they are disagree with that statement, that God is perfect is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. Um, I think is, is interesting. Cause I, I think these are, this to me just seems like distinct event evangelical. Like this is like a great, I mean, just a, a starter question, you know, of, uh, of evangelical theology. Um, I, Michael, take us through this. I mean, what, what's the, what's the problem here? Is there a problem here? Or uh, is this, is this okay? Is this to be expected as people are asked such a question? Yeah, well, you would, ex I, well, at least I would expect among evangelical, uh, you would see a hundred percent response of agreeing uh, to the fact that God is perfect. Um, I mean, this is clearly what scripture teaches. Uh, that, that he is not making mistakes and so on. Um, I think maybe what it reflects, and this is, again, th th this is conjecture on our part. We, we don't know because, you know, there's one thing to do a quantitative study like this is where we're just getting pure data and it's another thing to do a qualitative study. So if you, when you combine those two types of studies, you, then you get really uh, a excellent uh, view of what's happening and what we're missing here is the qualitative uh, the component. But, but so what it does is it raises questions that we would want to explore. Um, and so one wonders with uh, only 80% really strongly agreeing with a statement like that, if there might be, um, and we're seeing this, I think, at some level in uh, the evangelical world, if there might be some uh, sense of, uh, uh, of being uncomfortable with, uh, with, uh, for example, how God is presented in the Old Testament, um, is there some deconstruction here going on of uh, contemporary evangelicalism that's impacting the way in which people view uh, who God is? Um, but again, um, speculation on our part at this point. Interestingly enough, if you change the data point um, on that left side there and you go change it from affiliation and go back to all, but then you go under belief, there's really only two options or three options. There's all, there's evangelical, and then there's non-evangelical. So I'm not quite sure what they're putting into who's in that evangelical versus non, but if you change it to just look at those who have an evangelical belief, that number jumps up to 94% strongly agree mm. with 4% somewhat, which brings you to 98%. Uh -huh. So um, that may be actually more encouraging news, perhaps depending upon the sample there. And perhaps people have a evangelical belief system, but perhaps their affiliation is not necessarily within evangelicalism. Um, so that could potentially account for some of that, um, the differences there. Yep.
Yeah, good. Good. Uh, let's look at another one. Yeah, let's do it. Um, what do you think about that statement number two? There's one true God in three persons. This is a question about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, again, something similar to what we just saw. And uh, as you pointed out under the beliefs tab that we're seeing 94% strongly agree with that. And that, and again, I would expect to see 100%, um, but there certainly are some things that are happening in our uh, evangelical culture that might raise question to uh, the, the historic understanding of God and Trinity. I believe that there might even be people, you know, I can't, I'm just talking about as a pastor, uh, knowing who's in my congregation at times. And I've talked to people who have been in the pews week after week, the proverbial pews, hearing from us talk about, you know, God, the Holy Spirit, God, the Son, Jesus is divine. He is God's Son. And coming up to us afterwards saying, I've never heard about that, knowing that I have personally talked about that the, pre, the three prior weeks. So certainly there may be people who are young in the faith and just like the idea of Jesus as good and loving, and they came by and maybe they fell under the banner of evangelical. So here are my fingers crossed. These are immature believers who just haven't heard. Yeah, it, it could it could very well be, um, or they haven't understood clearly, or you know there could be a number of reasons why um, there might be might not be complete agreement on one of these statements. And I'm actually I don't want to chastise myself, but I, I do want to understand that for listeners, we're going through this uh, from that very rooted evangelical thought. And it might sound like we're coming down really hard on anybody who disagrees. I think for us, our conviction is these sort of things are baseline. These are orthodoxy and we hold them to be true. And so for those who would disagree with them, we would just, would love to invite a conversation on why, like, why would you disagree based on scripture? Um, because for us, like Michael said, like Matt said, we would love to see a hundred percent on these. Um, I, I'm looking at uh, statement number three, and I think this is a bit more of an interesting one. Um, God accepts the worship of our religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Um, this has always been, I think, uh, you know, I think something in our uh, secularized society, obviously, that um, we wrestle through. Um, I mean, you're looking at 42% of all respondents say yes um, to that, uh, that God accepts worship. Um, of all religions, uh, with 16% strongly disagreeing with that. Um, among evangelicals, those who believe, um, 33%, that's a significant number of evangelicals that are strongly agreeing that God, is, that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Um, so flip, flip, your, flip your numbers there. So on statement three, evangelicals that strongly disagree that God accepts the worship of all religions is yes. 35%. For evangelicals yes and, and then for those who agree in the strongly agree category is 29 percent. so evangelicals are almost split down the middle on this statement and yeah, actually in the, in the affiliation for, yep. yeah and so if you're going to say evangelical it's 46 percent disagree with this statement and it's 46 percent 
the degree. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, and this is one of those fuzzy questions too. God accepts the worship of all religions. I mean, I mean, it really depends on um, how you, I mean, how you think about God's involvement in the world. Um, so, I, I, I mean, this one, I, I can see where we could we can see a divide, a split here, uh, or perhaps even a confusion of, of uh, what exactly is uh, being said. Because on one level, I mean, I might agree and, and say, yeah, um, a Muslim could worship God, uh, and God would be ple pleased with that if he were worshiping or she were worshiping the one true God. Um, but at the same time, if you have a, a belief that the God uh, that a Muslim is worshiping is different than a God who a Christian worships, then you might disagree on that. So, yeah, so this is a, this is a confusing question. Well, you muddied the waters there. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Well, hey. <laughs> That's what he's here for. Yeah. yeah. Well, what would have been interesting in this one, um, and I don't, I don't recall if they bring this out in a later question or not, but if they were to have injected Buddhism uh, as well or Hinduism in this, then then that would oh, really uh, confuse a polytheistic yeah. religion or or an atheistic uh, Buddhism at its, I mean at its core is atheistic. Um, but Hinduism, a, you know, a polytheistic uh, system. So yeah, th that would have been interesting in here as well, or to have it as a completely separate question about how Christians view um, the worship of others that have uh, very distinct differences with Christianity. Yeah. Here, I mean, I mean, there's, you know, Judaism and Christianity, um, Generally, everybody agrees that Yahweh and God are the same, uh, although the Jews, of course, don't believe in a Trinitarian God. Um, and then, of course, there, there has been quite a conversation over whether or not Yahweh, uh, Yahweh, um, Allah is the same as God and Yahweh. Mm -hmm. um, there are evangelicals that say, yeah. Uh, he is. And then there are others that say that, uh, no, he's not. In fact, it, there are those that have gone to an extreme and actually have said that Allah is a demon. Uh, th that is way off the chart uh, in, in terms of what really would be permissible um, in terms, in relationship to how Islam uh, came into being and how it, it grew and what its original understanding of Allah was. Um, I want to skip ahead to statement number 15, because uh, Michael, we were just starting to talk about this, which really is kind of the basis um, for this conversation. And perhaps we should have started here. Um, the statement is the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches, um, which is really, I think, foundational to what it is that we're trying to address, or at least trying to uncover here that um, believing that if the word of God is God's divine revelation to mankind, then understandably so, these questions are actually kind of coming out of a knowledge or an understanding of that scripture as being such. So um, here we have a question or a statement, the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. Um, again, this could be fuzzy because the question is, does it teach me to stone my wife? 
if she cheats on me, right? Um, or that I, for example. Um, so obviously there can be some conjecture here. Um, and depending upon your affiliation or where you have come from or your, you know, your seminary or even your pastor, uh, you may have a different approach or understanding of, of what this question really means. But just looking at the raw data, um, you know, you're looking at 59% of evangelicals strongly agree, 18% somewhat. Uh, you've got a somewhat disagree and strongly disagree is rounding into 20%. Um, so even as an evangelical, I think I would be, un- I'd be uncomfortable. Maybe, maybe answering that question is hundred percent accurate. I guess it depends on your, your understanding, but um, yeah, I don't know. This could be a hard, this could be a hard question to answer perhaps. What do you guys think? Oh yeah, I, I agree. First I mean, and foremost, um, let's just make sure that people are hearing from the Ephesiology podcast. Um, it is not okay to stone your wife if she. <laughs> so, if you I'm had you clarified that for me, if you had fuzziness based on your understanding of Scripture, allow us to speak clarity into it. <laughs> so, there's what I think, Michael. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks for that clarification. Um, yeah, I think you're right, Matt. I think this is one of those questions, again, that can be a little bit fuzzy because, uh, and I think it's going to probably depend on, uh, to some extent, on the evangelical's view of science and which takes precedence here. I mean, do, so for someone who would hold to a literal six-day creation, uh, they would probably hold to 100% accuracy that the Bible teaches, uh, you know, a literal 24-hour period of time. Um, there, of course, are others who might look at that text and say, well, no, based on science, as God himself has revealed himself through science as well, through his creation, that um, the accuracy of saying that the that uh, the earth was created in the literal six uh, 24 hour periods probably isn't there and if but of course you know they would talk about uh, uh, the, the definition of the Hebrew word for day as being a period of time there are some others you know you think in terms of the numbers um, that are that are recorded in scripture uh, that was Luke a hundred percent certain that there were three thousand that came to Christ and then five thousand? I mean, did he count literally each number, each person, or were those just estimates? Um, and, and so there are those kinds of things that might make this a little bit uh, fuzzier. Um, I think but, lo- the longer the longer you kind of I mean, Michael, you just pointed out only two things. Yeah, for all of Scripture. And so if you've only picked out two things that would cause somebody pause and saying they strongly agree and saying, ah, I mean, I'm at 98%, but there are these things that I'm kind of like, ah, then that would cause them to select. Well, what if they have more than two issues? What if they have more things throughout scripture that they, they want to scratch their head about? I, I, I appreciate that we on this podcast are at least approaching these questions with a a lot of grace as opposed to approaching them with this we come with the final knowledge of exactly how these questions should be answered exactly how quote-unquote good christians should respond Mm. and anything else is right out like the reality is sometimes fuzzy questions lead to different answers yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, at least as I think about this particular statement, uh, the Bible is a hundred percent accurate in all that it teaches. It, usually what we find in evangelical doctrinal statements or statement of faiths is that uh, they'll say something that the Bible is accurate at, in what it teaches about the Christian life um, or, or something to that effect. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we can agree with that statement that the Bible is authoritative and accurately uh, teaches what uh, is intended for us to know about living our lives. You know, interestingly enough, too, uh, the next question, it, it really has this question about science. And Michael, you're kind of bringing that up and as being kind of a potential, um, you know, that will obviously potentially sway how you answer such a question and um, what your perception of, uh, you know, the scriptures and how authoritative they are necessarily. But the, the next question, statement 16, is modern science disproves the Bible. Um, it seems like overwhelmingly, everybody who answers that question strongly disagrees with that, uh, or at least strongly disagrees with that statement that modern science disproves the Bible, which actually I find very encouraging. But and you see like a, a broader like engagement where it seems like there's kind of a somewhat disagree, um, you know, not sure. And then you've got some of those who are a little bit higher in the agreement side. Um, evangelicals, interestingly enough, I feel like, um, 16% or fall into that agree category, which I find a bit surprising. Um, just considering how much the evangelical culture tends to rail against <laughs> modern science and as a whole, um, I'm a little surprised even in that number, but just to see that there's some engagement to say, you know, I wonder if there is some kind of play here. There is some kind of tug of war. I mean, you, even as you were saying, Michael, like literal, you know, six day creation versus over a prolonged period of time, we have science that's helping us kind of explore and understand our world a little bit more in detail. And yet we can hold these two things in tension. Um, you know, how does that all kind of play into this? So that, again, I could he kind of persuade your other answer on the Bible is 100% accurate and all it teaches. Um, overall, though, I mean, what is the implications of of this, of, of you know, depending on how one answers this? And I think what's hard about this, I mean, because I'm thinking through this too, like, we're trying to hold this intention. We're trying to have a grace-filled approach of, of how people are answering this, how they might be persuaded depending upon their background. But what are the implications here of us looking at this data and seeing kind of the, the spread? Are we looking for absolute uniformity on, on core issues? And, and how much does this state to those core issues that we're trying to get, get after? Specifically this question on science? Not just this one, but I mean, really the whole, the whole gamut here as we're looking at this data. Yeah, and I think that's even, a, it's a super, super necessary question because if we, if we aren't asking that question, Matt, then these results are almost useless. You know what I mean? Like, then we get to go back and say, it's just another survey. It's, you know, a whole bunch of fuzzy questions. These are nice opinions. Um, but here, let's take, let's take a question that's, uh, so I, again, we're talking about some of the fuzzy questions right now and where we're going to see this. Then let's jump to question or statement six. Oh, wait, wait, hold that. We do want to jump to statement six, but I, I think there's something here important though for us in this question about science, because um, what, what it's, at least it seems to me as I'm looking at this and seeing the responses, it, it uh, is indicating something that we believe about how God has revealed himself. 
and where we would place the priority of that revelation. And, um, and not that, well, I don't know if that raises a concern or not, but um, I think what we're seeing is that there's a priority of uh, accuracy on the scripture um, and less of a priority of, of God and how he revealed himself through his creation. And, uh, and so I, I, I'm, yeah, I mean, that's just an interesting uh, observation. To well, make. it's in a, it seems like it's an appreciation for the fact that uh, scripture hasn't run its course. You know what I mean? Like we, the majority of the people aren't saying scripture's done. Mm. It's just science. Let's move on. More saying, like you said, the weight is still on scripture mm. and that's good. What is the, speaking of this particular issue, because I, I think this feels relevant um, and, and I don't mean to keep pushing you back, uh, Andrew, to the next question. We'll get but, to statement six in a moment. Yeah, I, but I'm, I'm, you know, I think even in today, like right now, we're we're talking about conspiracy theories. We're talking about COVID nineteen. We're talking about the pandemic. We're talking about global warming. Um, science says to us, uh, at least those who, the majority, uh, I'm not speaking for all scientists. Um, they tell us that hey, COVID nineteen is real. It's not a hoax. Um, it actually kills people. Um, it's that we should be taking this seriously. Global warming, it's real, it's actually happening. Um, now, we could debate and get into the weeds on some of these things, obviously, and I'm no scientist myself, and I just, I read like anybody else reads and educate myself like anybody else does. But as evangelicals and as those who are Christians, it's interesting that we've always kind of had this tug of war uh, between science and disproval, you know, whether we're going to prove or disprove the Bible. And we try to use science to our advantage to prove the points that we're trying to make oftentimes. And yet then we cast out the things that perhaps challenge some belief in thinking. Um, this offers some creative, creative attention. I think that we, that we should really be held accountable to that really we should be thinking about. And Michael really to your point that how does God reveal himself? There's, there's special revelation and there's natural revelation. I mean, how could we not say, like, if we, if we truly believe that God has some sort of version of natural revelation, and if science is the study of nature and the things around us, then we should be able to find God in some of these things, right? Mm. And some of his creative order. And so for us, I think we should kind of have this tension that says, where does science play into our belief and how does it potentially impact our theology and how we begin to read the Bible? Oh yeah, I, I, absolutely. That'd make a great podcast. I was going to say, I was like, <laughs> wow, you just, that single question, we need to have somebody significantly smarter than me on to talk with about that because I think I'm with Michael. That's a, a podcast. What are you talking about? That's books. I mean, that is, that is seriously worth wrestling. Um, because I, I was just talking to uh, our friend of the pod, Nate Goss, today, um, hopefully our guest next week. And uh, I, I was saying, you know, I have been accused a time or two of making a statement early on in a sermon, either based on science, based on philosophy, based on something. And I've said it wrong. And I have been told by a few people, they said, wow. The rest of your sermon sounded nice, but you really lost me early on because I totally disagreed. Like, you were wrong. It wasn't that it was like a red or blue sort of situation. It was like, you said something patently false. 
And I basically couldn't listen to the rest of the sermon. Mm. And so I think there is a great appreciation that we need to have for the sciences and how they continue to point towards God, how creation continues to decry or declare, not decry, declare his glory. And we don't need to run from it. Mm. Um, we need to kind of embrace those things. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that science continues to show God's handiwork. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's Psalm 19, isn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God. Um, so yeah, we should be we should be able to see something of God in what He's created, um, because God uses that, in, in fact, to draw people to Himself. Good. Hey, statement six. Let's hit it. Am I allowed? Am I allowed to talk now? Yes. That, please. I'm kidding. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Uh, statement six. Well, I'm going to actually, I think I want us to tackle the, the facts from statement six and statement seven, um, kind of in one fell swoop. But statement six says, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Statement six says, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. There are 66% of evangelicals that agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Uh, Michael, we keep lobbying created. these to you. Yeah, key being, keyword, created. Uh, Michael, I'll let you sit on the bench for a second. Matt, what sticks out to you that worries you about this question and the responses? Um, yeah, the fact that there's a high number of people, actually, I mean, overall, you have 38% who strongly agree with that statement, and then 62% strongly agree. I could potentially see this, 62% of evangelicals. It's 56%. I said 66%. So those people who are tracking with me I'm about sorry. stories that I I'm said looking at early the on. I'm looking and... at the belief side. <laughs> mine again. It's 56% yeah. who strongly agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Thank this you. is just hilarity in action. We're Continue, just Matt. We're just not even getting our, our numbers right here. The, theologians cannot do math. No, we cannot. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. We're no, that's not incapable. what I'm saying because math is good and we need to do it right and I'm doing it wrong. So let me have shame on my face. We need our mathematicians math. and our scientists. We'll do the theology. Um, so, yeah, this is concerning to me. Um, and I, I would just say that I could totally see if somebody's just answering this on a survey and they're already at number six question that they just blaze through the word created. And I think that's a bit of a, um, a hard, I think some people, I could just totally see them just checking the box first and greatest, first and greatest. Yep. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's Jesus. Right. Um, but that's a total denial really of John one um, and uh, how the word was in the beginning um, and it's tying to the Christ. And so I, you know, we talk about this idea of Jesus really being at the at the point of creation, he, and, and it's also a bit of a denial of the Trinity. Um, so I, I think there's, but I, you know, honestly, I th just think this speaks to the, the the mystery of the Trinity that people just don't fully have a full comprehension of it. Um, pastors sometimes don't, theologians sometimes don't. Um, you know, I, I think okay, that, but. Mm, I want to push back on that because you're being super gracious right now <laughs> and I appreciate that. But like this, the basis of Christianity is that 
Jesus is God who has existed from all eternity yes. and will continue to exist. And God the same came yesterday, down, today, forever, yeah. mm-hmm. putting on flesh, taking taking our sin upon himself on the cross, dying and resurrecting, and then raising to heaven in bodily form and will return bodily. Those are other questions on this survey, but I, I am not okay. Like I get a handful of people trying to blaze through this. Right. 56% saying Jesus was created. That's a whole lot of people to oops on this one. Well, so I, think, I'd lump those other 11% in there too, Andrew. The not uh, sures. The, the, ah. some, the not sures. So Do we now feel- actually are at 67%, which was close to the 66% I erroneously said earlier. Cool. I'm with it. That's exactly what I did, Matt. And do Michael, you exactly do you do you just feel like that this is just biblical illiteracy? At, um, is that what this is? You think? Mm-hmm. You, you know what? I think in the best case, that's what this is: is biblical illiteracy. Um, the worst case is that people just have a very false sense of salvation uh, because they don't know who Jesus is. Um, again, this is where qualitative. Uh, data comes into play and is very helpful to to be able to unpack you know what did what did you think about this question Um, what was your motivation for answering the way that you did so that we get some of the backstory to this and we don't have that but that being said um, again this is longitudinal this is very similar to the prior uh, two surveys in 2016 and 2018 so this trend has not really changed. Um, there is a, a, at best, like you said, a growing biblical illiteracy that's, um, that's concerning. Uh, you know, people don't know accurately who Jesus is. And if we don't know who Jesus is, how can we accurately communicate who he is to others? I don't know. I'm, this is, it's worrisome only in that, like if someone were to just to say, kind of throw up their hands and totally sound like an old person who is going to be curmudgeonly and say, ah, they just don't know their church history. Don't they know that this was taken care of in the early hundreds? Like Arianism dealt with this. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, is that was about about the 300s, Michael? Yeah, well, so, prior, no, it, well, the, in the late 200s, we begin to okay. see different forms of what we call Christological heresies that, that didn't believe that Jesus was God. And so what but I'm saying yeah, is it, like... It, it comes into full manifestation in the fourth century with Arius. Yeah, and so we, like, those of us who are church history nerds, we know that. And thank you, Michael, for, as a you know, doctor, you have put your stamp on that. Um, but when we, when we tell somebody about Jesus and his full salvation, we may not bring up false heresies that have been rooted out since the fourth century. Like that's fine. But at the same time, what type of Jesus are we preaching? Are we preaching an easy believism? Just, you know, say his name in the right order, just like Mm -hmm. an incantation, and you get your get out of hell free card. I mean, what type of Christ are we preaching? And, and what does it look like to actually disciple somebody to be self-feeding where they are in scripture daily to see Jesus was not created? 
Yeah, I, I, you. I think you're spot on. I think you are uh, highlighting this soteriological issue. Um, what do we believe about salvation, and and uh, what needs to be believed about who Jesus is? You know, even looking at statement seven, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. I mean, that is far more clear. So, and I think that uh, in terms of the statement as to what it's trying to portray, um, evangelicals overwhelmingly disagreed. However, a still significant number of them agreed with that statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Um, Just like the last question, adding in the not sure category, you've got 36%. It's high. That's agreeing. a high number like, agreeing yeah. that he was just simply a great teacher, but not God. And yet they affiliate themselves with an evangelical church, which, I, you know, that's, and even just again, overall, I mean, you just look at the overall affiliations and that's, that number is much higher. Um, and it's much lower for the strongly disagree category in the disagree category. You're only talking 37% of people disagree with that statement. And then the rest are in, are in either not sure or in full agreement. Um yeah, so that, that is interesting because uh, that really is, becomes the crux of, of really Christianity at its, right? I mean, th- this is where we're at. I mean, this is, Jesus is not just a great teacher. He is God. Um, and, and that is the basis for much of Christianity and Christian thought and um, the mission. So th- th- this is, this is one of those bigger concerns. Where do we go from here? How do we, how does, how does a, a pastor, a, a church leader who's listening to this kind of go, what do I do? How, how do I, how do I shape this? I mean, it's, I can imagine that there's people in your church today. If you're a pastor listening to this or a, a church member listening to this now, that if you were to sample your church, your samples might come out very similar to this. Um, maybe not identical, but it's very possible you're going to have other people within your church who've been longtime members even, who may even agree with the statement that Jesus was just a great teacher and he's not God himself. So where do, where do we go from here? How do we begin to, to shape the future of Christianity um, if, in fact, this is the prevalent beliefs? Yeah, well, it really speaks to our need to, um, like we said at the top of the program, to defend the faith. And uh, first, looking at the church, we need to be sure that there's good teaching uh, that's going on in the church. And that, and I know, and we've said this before uh, on different podcasts, that, that we, uh, past, the pastors we know are not going to teach heresy. Um, but the thing is, is that um, we don't always know what people hear from what we teach. And so I think what this tells us is that there's a, a, deep, <clears throat> a deep need for us to, as church leaders, to really engage with the people in our churches, not on a superficial level, but on a deep uh, spiritual, theological level, so that we understand and, and uh, learn what they know uh, and can help and disciple them in, in, into maturity as followers of Christ. It really sounds like this is a pretty strong plug um, you know, when Michael says to preach the authentic faith, to hold true to the gospel that we have been given, um, that absolutely does mean solid sermons from the stage or, you know, in front of the pews or however you're preaching dynamic works right now during the age of COVID. Solid teaching still matters. 
And so for everybody listening who has been very frustrated by the changing nature of the sermon and just being able to preach God's word, I just want to encourage you do it because it still matters. (laughs) It still absolutely matters. But I want to double down on what Michael also said, which is uh, we've got to be side by side with our leaders. We have got to be knee to knee with people who are in our congregations where we are in their lives and we are walking through scriptures on a consistent basis and saying, this is what's here. This is what God says. Do you understand that? What doesn't make sense about what you're reading and work through it together? Because if we aren't working through it together, we can have really awesome people who show up every Sunday with smiles and bright eyes, but it's just not landing. Like Michael said, you got to actually know what are people receiving? What are they internalizing? What are they putting into practice in their lives? And frankly, if you're a nerd that loves data, and I do love numbers, that's why I'm laughing that I'm the one who made the math mistake. Um, I, it would be kind of fun, actually, to if, if your people in your congregation could bear through it, to ask them all of these exact questions. See where your people are. You know, yeah. I think this is a this is a case too for because I'm I'm just thinking myself like, you know, pastors are going to be there. They have so many things on their plates. I'm worried about you know visiting uh, the person or the people who are, are in the hospital. Right, I've got a wedding I'm going to be performing soon. I've um, I'm working on trying to grow our outreach strategy. Uh, we're in the age of COVID. I'm trying to expand our online service or offering. Um, there are these other needs in our community that have come up. We're trying to organize a food drive. You know, like there's so many other things that are constantly on the plate, let alone the budget's a mess. And we're trying to figure out what to do with our building right now. Or maybe we pay rent and we can't go back to the rental property because of COVID. And we're trying to figure out where to meet now. Um, Counseling appointments, endless things. And then it's like, throw on there, like the sermons coming up. And what kind of sermons you've been preaching, perhaps? It, it, to me, it seems like this is a case for apest typology. Oh, 100%. I, like, I was just thinking that, Matt, as you're talking. Right? This is like, let the teachers be teachers. Where are the teachers? And pastor, you may not be the teacher. Let's just admit that. Like, uh, like some pastors are just not the teachers. They're the, they're the ones who are the apostolic types that are going to rally the troops some of the evangelists who are going to pull in the people off the streets, uh, some of the prophetic, but like where are the prophets and the teachers who are going to help ground the church, right? Um, and those are the ones that we need. Um, those are the ones that need more airtime. They are the ones who need to be on the ground, boots on the ground, helping the congregation, the community, the people to move forward um, in these areas so that these kind of things can kind of get capped off. Um, and if you don't have it, you got to export it. You got to send them to a, a seminary that's going to do certificate classes, send them to physiology master classes to get trained. Uh, this is, this is the, this is why these things exist, I think. And realizing that we cannot be the one man shows anymore. And I think that's what this data shows me. I think we got too much one man day. We got one man shows happening far too much and we don't have enough holistic teaching around uh, these kind of concepts to shepherd people and disciple them uh, in the ways of Jesus. Well, and also consumer Christianity is alive and well. Yes. That, you know, I can come and I can get all that I need just with one service or one sermon. Um, 
And once I've got that, I'm good. And we can look at these answers. Again, some questions being a little fuzzier than others, um, but some of the big, big orthodox ones like this, that's when we say, yeah, it seems that just one sermon in a, every now and again is not enough to actually change someone's entire life in the direction of it towards Christ. Mm. Yeah. The, yeah. The, you know, I have so many things running through my head right now, Matt, I appreciated so much you bringing that up because, you know, we are in, in the church in general, not just in, in America, but we're, we're really out of balance on this um, in terms of our leadership and uh, really celebrating and, and even structuring our churches around what Jesus had attended with, with uh, the apest leaders. And I think I agree. I mean, a survey like this kind of reveals that out of balance. So I, I would, my concern um, with these kinds of surveys is that pastors and church leaders will look at these and say, oh, well, you know, they should be listening better. Well, perhaps that might be a part of the issue, but I think this really calls us as communicators of uh, the truth of the gospel to be better communicators and uh, not just rely simply on the Sunday mornings as the, the place where we transfer biblical content and theological content from a single person to the rest of the people in the pews. But like we've been saying, we need to really get to know our folks uh, in our churches and understand where they are and, and really disciple. I mean, that's what discipleship is about. Um, and so I think, you know, a survey like this reveals that, that, um, we, we need to do a better job in the way in which we disciple people. I have one question, uh, that I'm, I'm sifting through the survey and I'm heartened by everything that we are talking about. I am excited by that call to discipleship and to really walk along with people, but I, I was punching through this survey to see if there was anything that jumped out. Uh, gentlemen, if I could draw your attention to question number 21. Question 21. The statement is, Christians should be silent on issues of politics. Christians should be silent. I was going to go there. On... I was going to go there, and I thought, nah, I'm not going to go there. Oh, well, we're two or three are You're there. his name. We're there. Uh, Matt, I love misquoting scripture or misapplying yes. it. So, um, <laughs> so in this statement, um, 58% of evangelicals strongly disagree. So that means 58% of evangelicals are like, yes, we should actually say something in the issue of politics. 24 somewhat agree. So combining those, we are at 82%. 82% of Christians disagree. And do think, in fact, that Christians should, be, should not be silent on the issues of politics. Christians should have something to say. Um, I'm just going to put it to you guys. I think I've stirred it up. I just wanted to put it out there. Here's, here's what I find to be of most interest of that answer. And I've got another one I want to go to that is kind of the same thing. This right here, if you're asking Christians and they're saying not to be silent on issues of politics... 
How often is that in contrast to many of, I think, pastors from the pulpit who avoid talking about politics from the pulpit? I know that's not the case for everybody. I know it's not the case for every uh, pastor who's listening to this. And I know there's always been pushback when you do. Um, But this I find interesting. I find this interesting because most, in my experience, most pastors avoid the direct political conversations uh, from the pulpit. Um, but many here, we have Christians saying they should not be silent on issues of politics. Um, so I just, well, I find that interesting. Yeah. I find it interesting too, begin because we're talking about fuzzy questions. Yeah. Like the way that you just articulated it is a, I wonder, you know, those who make statements that are political statements, but I'm looking at this. I was looking at almost in, from the lens of like an activist. Oh, sure. So, you know, if you're reading this, a Christian who says, I don't like what's happening to brothers and sisters of mine who are of a different skin color. I want to stand against that. Yeah. They are going to take action. They are not going to be silent. And frankly, they're not going to be silent, not for what they deem political issues, but moral issues. But people from we another so. side we are going so. to label it a political issue. Right. So I just think this is, this is certainly a muddy question where, yeah. and even I even thought you were going to go here, Matt, that there might be more people who are saying we should absolutely be vocal in politics um, who are of one party affiliation. Right. But, but there's no there are people, there are people who are on the exact opposite end of a different a party affiliation who would agree and say, you're right. We shouldn't be silent and we should be, you know, we should but be keep actually your, keep your Bible and your God out of the conversation. Uh, I mean, I, this is just fascinating. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm amazed by this one. This one did shock me. The, I would, I would agree. I'm, I'm surprised by the numbers. And actually what I was going to think about here and is that again, I feel like this is an area that needs coaching. This is an area that needs training and teaching. This is an area that needs discipleship. Um, if there are many Christians who believe that we should not be silent on issues of politics, then we should be at least providing holistic discipleship of saying, well, then how do we appropriately activate ourselves through, you know, in the political system? How do we behave properly and how do we think through these issues? Well, um, I, I think that's, that's huge then. That's huge. We don't know if these people uh, who've answered this feel like that they have enough training in that or not. Um, or if they're potentially just separating the two faith and, you know, state and religion are two different things, you know, uh, to them, but yes, I'm a Christian and I'm involved in politics and maybe that's all that it involves. Right. For some. Um, so I, I think this is, this is interesting. Michael, what do you think? Michael, what do you think? Yeah. I'm, I'm interested. He's like super, super quiet. He's not even muted, but he's acting like he's muted. So I'm being silent on politics. Uh, I said it. I said plenty. Michael voted. He he filled it out strongly. Agreed. Right. Yeah. I um. Yeah. You know what? This is a. I mean, it's an interesting one for sure. That to see how strongly uh, the evangelicals feel about not being silent on politics, and I I don't disagree personally. I, I think uh, Christians, uh, the evangelicals, should uh, play a part in uh, the the political system in in some way. Um, now the, the challenge here, of course, is, um, one being careful not to conflate politics with our faith, 
which so frequently happens and it historically it has happened. Um, secondly, can you, can you elaborate on that just real quickly? What does that look like for you? No, I, I mean that because like, that's a yeah. quick statement that, but there's a lot under that umbrella where somebody might say, again, it's my faith in action and it's being viewed as conflating faith and politics. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think when we begin to confuse our allegiances um, and uh, we begin to align ourselves more with a political ideology, um, and uh, that doesn't mean that we're not aligning ourselves with uh, God. Uh, I think Christians and evangelicals will say, yes, I am aligning myself with God. But at the same time, they'll align themselves with the political ideology um, that they believe is uh, coming from God, for example. Um, but the, the question I think this always raises, at least for me, is, you know, what do you do when you have very strong believers that have very different political ideologies? Can they both be right? Well, I think for me then, uh, what this begins to raise in terms of uh, our Christianity is, are we really a hundred percent aligned with who God is first. Um, and, and that can, that, that concerns me because I, I think one of the, one of the hints that we are beginning to conflate our faith with our politics is that we begin to look to change systems, polit political systems, social systems, civil systems, whatever, uh, educational system, financial systems or whatever. And that our objective then is to change those systems. When I think the Christian objective is to see people's lives transformed. And as a result of the transformation of people's lives, and as they are aligning themselves with God, uh, then systems will change. And so I think it's, it's that objective part uh, of this. Um, um, I'm going to wholesale, wholesale disagree. Uh, at least in how you have defined this. And uh, this is probably another podcast. Um, but it seems the to gauntlet me... gauntlet has been... I know, but it... No, I just... If I were to take that statement, because you know what we do is we have people that listen to our podcasts and then they take things out of context and they quote us on articles. They don't do that. They do that for actual famous people. So I'm kidding. But if someone were to excerpt what you said, Michael, and say that a person is out of allegiance or out of alignment with Christ if they seek to change systems as a way to bring about good for people, then I would wholly disagree. Like that is exactly what the civil rights movement was about. I mean, if we are going to take one issue and one instance in history, Martin Luther King Jr. and many brothers and sisters in the faith said, there is a system that is against us as people and we seek to seek its change and we are a part of it because of our faith, then that is somebody living out their faith through seeking a system's change. Not somebody who said, let's change a system. I'm abandoning my faith. And the way that you phrased it made it sound like that. Mm. That's how it came across. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not intending, of course, to say that people are abandoning their faith if they're seeking to change systems, because, I mean, that's happening uh, in our country even today. I mean, we're very well aware of the systemic issues that we're facing and people acting justly to try to change those systems. Uh, but here's the, here's the, again, I mean, I harp on this all the time, but this is the issue, is that you have good people on both sides that some who say, yes, we need to change the system because it's unjust, and others who say, no, we don't need to change the system because it's not unjust. And, and so who decides who's right? And so then what it does is that it, it puts Christian against Christian, brother and sister against brother and sister, who have the best of hearts, the best, best of intentions, and yet, because they've aligned themselves with a particular political thought, that they are more divided than uh, anything that could divide a, uh, divide a people. Um, and that's concerning to me. And what that tells me is that our focus is in the wrong place. Um, so yes, absolutely, systems need to change. But systems are not going to change until people are changed. And if, our, if we think that changing a system is going to result in the change of a person. It might for a few, but for that group of people who don't agree with the way in which you think a system should change, it only further marginalizes them. Um, and it further increases that division between uh, good Christians on both sides. So no, I'm not saying that systems don't need to change, but what I am saying is that our focus needs to be on seeing people's lives changed and that being holistic. And I'm not talking just about soul salvation here because that is- Right, it's uh, all of life change. It's all of life change. And, and if including we are one's deeply- politic. I'm sorry? Uh -huh. Including one's Thanks politic. See, yeah, and that's well, what I'm yeah. saying. But I'm going to push back again, Michael, because again, what you said is we've got great people on both sides. Well, we can have great people on both sides, but if somebody's political ideology is okay with locking children up, is that okay? Or does something need to change? If you claim Christ and you support something that is immoral, what needs to change? Your allegiance with Christ. And thus by that, some of your political ideologies probably need to change. So... I, like I said, I think we're going to come to a disagreement on this, and that's fine because I am what I'm not disagreeing on is the seeking Christ as Lord, first and foremost, a heart change that leads to life change through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and an absolute everything change based on our pursuit of Him. I'm not disagreeing on any of that. But to say that because we believe in that, then we should again be silent on politics. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't be fighting. We shouldn't be increasing division. I don't know. There's some things where if there's a division, there's a disagreement. And as brothers and sisters, we work together to seek good for everybody in the name of Christ. I don't know. This is like I said. This no, is yeah. probably another podcast. But yeah, no. And I I agree with you, Andrew. I think as brothers and sisters, we should work together for the good of yeah. people, for the good of society. The, but the fact is, we don't, and, and mm. we are increasingly divided in this country over not only our 
uh, political beliefs, but our religious beliefs as well. And this survey is showing that. I mean, you think. Absolutely. You, you, you just see the division in the United States right now on political lines, on social lines. And you look at a survey like this that's saying that the, the majority of people, evangelicals, who you would think would agree with one another, don't even agree on who Jesus is. Then that should right. be of primary concern. And if people would align themselves with Christ and who he is, what he did on this earth, the model that he showed us to bring change in the lives of people and transformation that was holistic. I mean, the blind saw, the lame walked, uh, the, the, the deaf heard. I mean, if we can't see that, the, the imprisoned were visited, the naked were clothed. If we can't see that, then that's the issue here. And if people don't understand that Jesus, who gives us this model as God, and we're to follow that to, and to be imitators of him, then whatever we try to do in, a, in the change of a political system will be for naught. It will not last. And, and that's what I'm trying to, I'm getting a little <laughs> animated here. Yeah, well, uh, I'm glad you are. That's what I'm trying to communicate. And so, well, I know, and I, it's so I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that we're divided on these issues because we don't even know who Jesus is. We don't even agree on who Jesus is. Why yeah. in the world would we, would we agree politically? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and so I think there's, it's, it's almost like a, uh, it almost sounds like a chicken or the egg conversation, which comes first. And I think where, again, everything you just said, I agree. Like, let us get right with Jesus. Let us understand who he actually is. Let us, let us come to a faith in the God who loves us and who has saved us. I, I'm just saying maybe we as Christians shouldn't sit on our hands and say, we will wait to see any systemic changes until everybody gets their thoughts right on Jesus. I think no, I think there I, are some I, things that need to see changed. Yeah, yeah. So no, again, you know, going back and I've been on this kind of gig for a bit now, but going back to Jesus's letter to the church in Ephesus, he commends the church for defending the faith against the false teachers that were in the church. It, we should be doing that. There is obviously something false going on in the church if the majority of evangelicals don't even see Jesus as God. That has to be addressed. We need to be a part of that. But he also said, and he commends them for standing in the gap for people who were exploited and marginalized. Right. We have to be doing that. And if we're not doing that, we're not doing what Jesus said that we should be doing. And, and so that's so, going out and, and reaching so out to those people and engaging right. uh, them. But it's also, of course, I was, the declaration of his glory. I was going to plug your book and say, please, everybody, grab When Evangelical Sneeze, uh, because Michael goes into great lengths to describe the fact that Christians should actually be about social justice. And even if that statement, among two other things that he has already listed, and if that statement raises your ire, please get the book, read it in context, understand uh, what Michael is calling to church to faithfully pursue. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I, I'm just convinced if we did the things that Jesus wanted us to do, that we would be united, that, that we would truly be a, a unified voice for good in uh, this country and around the world. You know, Jesus gives us two greatest commands, the first being to love him, to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, our strength. 
And then the second, to love our neighbors, we love ourselves. And um, those both require, as you said, Michael, a total allegiance and a loyalty to the one true God. And it's there that with that allegiance and that loyalty, we can then enter into any circumstance, into any conversation in this world and take a, not a political stance, but to take a political stance and engage appropriately on both sides. And I think the reality is what has happened so much in this country and in our world is that we have allowed the allegiance of ideological political belief to circumvent and take over the Christian belief in our yes. ideology and our, and our actual loyalties. And so what has happened is that we have, we have allowed the political identity to take over the Christian identity when in fact it's totally okay. And this is why I think that actually it's okay for us to be able to cross the aisles. And the reality is neither party is going to be perfect. This is what it means to interact in an imperfect broken world. Right. And for us to stand in the middle, I mean, Jesus says, I, I come with a sword. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to divide mother, you know, child from son, mother and father. Like I've come to divide. I mean, I've come to like walk through the, in the middle and into the chaos and bring order to chaos. This is the ministry of Jesus. This is him restoring all things. This is him creating all things new and looking at both. And it's okay in a season to say, I used to affiliate with this party, but I can't anymore because they no longer do not support and stand for the Christian ethic. They do not stand for the ways of Jesus. And But we have so allowed these things to just like tighten it ourselves. And I see it on the left side too, liberal Christians and voting Democrat at all times and realizing like, you know, there's some things over here I just can't agree with. Rather than just saying, you don't have allegiance to those things. They're, these, are, these, are, <laughs> these are parties created by people that are imperfect, led by imperfect people, walk the ways of Jesus, declare a stance, take a stance and, and vote. And because the reality is at the end of the day, if we as a people, as Christians, organize and unify ourselves together, we're going to be a people that are going to be courted by these other human institutions because they realize that they can get elected when they do that. So yeah. we have to always have the discernment on, the hat on, and we've got to have the awareness about we, we serve a greater kingdom not the kingdoms of this world. And so it's not a disconnection from politics. It's not a disinterest from politics. It's not something that we should just step away from and let it all just go to hell in a handbasket. But no, this is what it means to be a father of Christ. And it means to call out, call it out when we see it and call out the righteousness and the unjustness that we see in this world. That's, that's what it means to be an allegiance to Jesus. And that's what it means for us to walk this way. And I realize it's not easy because when you give yourself to a particular institution or people or party, that's anything other than Jesus, you now have, you now have a God on your hands that you're going to have to deal with and you're going to feel like you have to separate from. Yeah. I would rather us, just as you were quoting the, the scripture on, you know, Jesus creating the division. I'm not saying I love division, but I would, if we're going to, if we're going to divide on something, let it be because we will not bow away from Christ. Yeah. But we are going to lean towards him and say, he is my one and only. And let that be the divider between those who are rejecting Christ and saying, we are inviting you as opposed to a political affiliation that will change by whoever's in power 
and um, whoever has the most money. Mm. Let's yeah. let's not let that be our chief, our chief priority, our right. chief identity. Let that remain Christ. Hey, before we wrap up, I just want to pull our attention to statement 26. It says, learning about theology is for pastors and scholars only. I'm so encouraged by this answer right here. Overwhelmingly evangelical and across the board, the majority disagree with that statement. Learning about theology is for pastors and scholars only. Wholesale disagreement across the board. That is so encouraging. And I think as church leaders, um, if and pastors and elders, your people, your church wants to be equipped. They want to know theology. Um, if you are a member of a church and you're not being equipped in theology, there are resources for you uh, to start with the Ephesiology masterclasses. Um, affordable uh, availability to learn theology on your own time and on your own dime. There's no one stopping you. And actually, we need we need more people. We need more Christians equipped with the Word of God and to just have fundamental basics understanding of theology and its implications uh, for everyday life more than ever before. We need this. And um, I just think this is encouraging. I think that's an incredibly encouraging statement that the church, the people have responded to in this survey. Yeah, I, I'm encouraged by that too. Um, I mean, we naturally, the three of us are because we, we tend to think theologically. But I mean, you look at this and you look at the other data and it's just crying. People are crying for more, for depth in, in what they're learning. And that is encouraging. And uh, so, yeah, praise the Lord. I'm in. I think uh, as, as people are saying they want more, um, we as pastors and leaders, as brothers and sisters in Christ should lean into it so that then they could answer affirmatively that God is not, or Jesus is not a created being, and he is in fact God Almighty. Um, so they have learning to go. So this is good. This is good. So sign up for your master classes as soon as you're done with the podcast. <laughs> Let's roll with it. Well, this has been a good episode and a good uh, another episode for us to kind of get our, our wheels churning and uh, kind of set the stage as we are and looking at heartbeat. another season. Goodness, you guys got me all riled up. Well, it sounds like we're going to have an episode on politics coming up soon. So look forward <laughs> to that. Closer to the election, I think. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we Maybe should do not. a live up the night coverage. Oh dear. Don't tempt oh, me. Don't tempt There's me. There's no mute button. <laughs> like, Don't tempt I can't me. edit that. <laughs> no. no. We want to invite you, our listeners, to be part of the growing physiology global community. Uh, whether you're an academic, a pastor, a church planter, a leader, or a spirit-filled Christ follower with a desire for God's mission in the world, we have a seat at the table for you. Uh, three easy ways you can be part of the Ephesiology community. One, subscribe to the Ephesiology podcast, which many of you already are, and be sure to leave a five-star rating and review. This is how more people can find this content. Number two, go to masterclasses.ephesiology.com. And that's where you're going to be able to hear and see all about our master classes. Sign up for, uh, just get a course under your belt or something. Uh, they're uh, affordable, they're easy, uh, and uh, and rigorous as well, too. Uh, chart full of information. See what's available today. More classes are being released uh, in the coming weeks and months ahead. And of course, you can learn more about our new physiology ministry at ephesiology.com. 
episode three, be sure to continue to join our ongoing conversations on the Facebook page just by looking for the Physiology. Well, for Michael, Andrew, and myself, thanks for doing Theology and Community with us on the Physiology Podcast. We'll catch you next time. Woo-hoo! Well, that, that was hot. That was hot. Got him riled up there, Andrew Johnson. Yeah, no kidding. You know, it, it's yeah. so fun.